Just about two weeks ago, a longtime member of our church died. Many of you know that I'm talking about Orla Curry. Orla began attending the church uh, in the late 90s and was a covenant member of this church for almost 20 years. But then about five years ago, she moved away uh, in order to be closer to family as her health began to decline. And so this Saturday, we will be hosting a memorial service for Orla here at the church at noon. Um, and certainly all of you who knew her, uh, and as well as any of you who would like to, uh, would love to have you come and be part of that service. At that service, we're going to sing together. We're going to pray together. We're going to read scripture. We're going to share stories and memories of Orla. There will be laughter. There will be tears as we grieve and celebrate her life. But there will be something peculiar about the way that many of us grieve. Because many of us will grieve with hope. Despite our sorrow, many of us will be comforted by hope. And one of the things that I'm going to explain in that service, one of the things that I'm going to declare in the service is the reason for that hope. And the reason is this. It is because we are going to see Orla again. Even though Orla has died and is no longer with us, we are going to get to hug and laugh and maybe even garden with Orla again. Now, I don't know for sure who's going to be at that service, but I would imagine that there will be at least a couple of people who will think, wow, what a nice sentiment. What comforting words to be able to give to a grieving family, even if they can't possibly be true. Others might be there and maybe they're a little gutsier and a little more honest with how they see things. And they might even lean over to the person next to them and say, can you believe that guy's saying that? He's talking about a resurrection. I mean, I'm sure the Bible must say something about that. But come on, talk about false hope. That's not how life, death, works. They make these claims, but where is the evidence? For them to claim that such a thing could possibly happen to us. Now maybe you're here this morning and you're one of those people who's wondering those very same things. And if that's the case, I am really glad that you're here. And you know what else? I also want to give you permission to raise those kinds of doubts and questions. Because this is a church that's not afraid of questions or doubts like that. On the other hand, I'm going to guess that, that most of you who are here this morning, most of the people who will be at that service, will actually be willing to accept the claim that I will be making about a future resurrection. And so for you, I have a different question, and that is this. How would you respond to the skeptic? 
what kind of evidence would you point to to back up why you're so confident that you will be raised to life one day? Not sure? Well, that's okay, because that's part of what we're going to talk about this morning. We're in the midst of a series from the New Testament book of First Thessalonians. This book is really a letter written by the great missionary, church planter, early church leader. He's got quite the resume. A uh, guy named Paul, apostle, all those things. And he wrote this letter uh, to Christians who were living in the city of Thessalonica. This is a church that he himself started. Uh, in this church, it's a church, it's a Greco-Roman city. Um, Thessalonica is a Greco-Roman city located uh, in, in modern Greece. And um, this city was very big. It was very prosperous. It was very religious, but not very Christian. And so Paul wrote this letter to them, to those Christians who were there, so that they would know how to live and respond to death well and faithfully as followers of Jesus in that city. And so this morning, we are going to learn why the Thessalonians grieved differently than their neighbors did. We're going to see why even death was not going to keep them or us from getting to experience the second coming of Jesus. And then, because there's no avoiding this, we're going to consider how this text speaks to the debate about the rapture. And if you don't know what that is, that's okay. I'll explain it when we get to it. In the meantime, though, uh, take out your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And um, yeah, take out your Bibles. I really want you to follow along with this. Uh, with this, uh, with the text as we look at it this morning. If you don't have a, your own Bible with you or a Bible app on your smartphone or tablet, grab one of those red Bibles that's there in the chairs in front of you, and we're going to be on page 1837 uh, in the red Bibles. And it's, that's First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. So here in our text, Paul explains why the Thessalonians grieve differently over the death of their loved ones than their neighbors do. Now, here in chapter 4, we have seen, as we've looked at chapter 4 the last several weeks, we have seen that uh, Paul addresses several topics here that he wants to make sure that the Thessalonians have clarity about. He's talked about practicing sexual holiness and about loving each other, loving each other so much that God is pleased and their neighbors are amazed by it. The next topic he addresses here in chapter 4 is the resurrection, and that's our text for today. And specifically, he talks about the resurrection of Christians. And by resurrection, he doesn't just mean some sort of spiritual resurrection, but the resurrection of the body. And so let's look what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. Um, I'm going to be starting in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. He writes to them, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, 
so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul here wants to make sure that the Thessalonian Christians have a clear understanding of the resurrection. He wants to make sure that they don't feel the need to grieve like their neighbors do when one of their loved one dies. Paul wants them to grieve with hope, hope of a future resurrection of the dead. Now, let me make two things very clear here, especially if if maybe you're somebody who's somewhat new to the Bible. The first is this. Paul here is talking about people who are dead. The Bible oftentimes uses the word sleep as a euphemism for death. In fact, the NIV translation, which is what I just read, it's what the Red Bibles are, actually helpfully translates this for us by saying, those who sleep in death. Uh, But the original text, and maybe even if you're using a different translation, um, actually, what what it actually says is, is only those who sleep. But there is no question that, that, uh, from the context here, that Paul is talking about people who are dead, okay? Second, I want to say something about the word hope. In English, we use the word hope to mean something we wish for. Kind of like some, kind of, like some of you here were, were wishing for the 49ers to win the Super Bowl last Sunday. You were hoping, you were hoping, you were wishing that they would win. But see, in the Bible, hope has a different meaning. In Bible, hope means not wish, but confident expectation. And so what Paul is describing here is not a wishing that people will come back from the dead, but rather a confident expectation that resurrection will happen. There's one more thing. Sometimes uh, people have used this text to to misconstrue Paul's words uh, to suggest that the Christians just aren't supposed to grieve at all because of what Paul says here. But that's also not correct. Uh, Because the the pain of separation caused by death is real. And it's something that should, it's something that we need to grieve. It's just that this grief is going to be tempered when we know that we are going to be reunited with that person once again one day. I mean, even Jesus grieves over the death of his friend Lazarus. And so it is, it is appropriate, necessary, for followers of Jesus to grieve. It's just that we get to do it with a confident expectation that we are going to get to see and experience and be reunited with our loved ones once again one day, if they're believers. But all of this raises a very important question. Why does Paul have so much confidence in this resurrection? Why should the Thessalonians have so much confidence in this resurrection? Why should people today, people like us, 
still have confidence that followers of Jesus will be raised to life again one day. Well, Paul gives the Thessalonians, the text gives us the answer in verse 14. Here it is. Jesus died and rose again. The evidence, the reason that we have, conf- we have confident expectation of our future resurrection is because of the past resurrection of Jesus. What we have here in the beginning of verse 14 is likely a creedal statement that was used in the early church. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Um, we actually see it in one of the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, to the church that was in Corinth, the Corinthians. Uh, He writes to them, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And and now he goes on and he describes what that gospel is. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was really dead, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then notice how even in the book of Acts, uh, how the book of Acts describes what Paul did and what he taught when he first got to the th- city of Thessalonica, this very city that he's writing to now. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer And rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. But then look again at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. The issue in Corinth is that there were some there who were arguing that there wouldn't really be a future resurrection. That it was just wishful thinking. And Paul's response to them is, If that's true, then that means that even Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He writes to them, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, then we are... We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Don't stop there. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. 
So here Paul is explaining why the resurrection of Jesus is everything for Christianity. It is at the very center of God's redemptive plan. But Jesus' resurrection is also more than this. It's also the first of what will be many resurrections. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not a one-off event. According to the Bible, he is only the first of what will be the future bodily resurrection of everyone who has pledged love and loyalty to him. And so the evidence that we have that we as followers of Jesus will be raised from the dead, the reason that we can have confident expectation of this future resurrection is because Jesus was raised from the dead. It happened to him, and so it's going to happen to us. The resurrected Jesus is our evidence of that. Now that's great news, right? Resurrection's coming. For us, for all of our loved ones who also follow Jesus, it's good news, right? The answer is yes. <laughs> but that might lead you to another question. The question of when. When will the resurrection of the dead happen? We're going to get to that next, but first, we need to pause, we need to step back, and we actually need to look a little bit closer at the situation in Thessalonica, in the Thessalonican church. We need to make sure that we are fully grasping the situation that Paul was speaking to here in this part of the letter. Here's what I'm getting at. The Thessalonians' real concern at this point wasn't the if of the resurrection, it was the when of the resurrection. In other words, these Christians there, these early believers, they were not questioning that their believing loved ones would be raised from the dead. What they were worried about was when this was going to happen. They were worried that this resurrection would not happen in time for these loved ones of theirs who are now dead to be able to join the party. And I'm going to explain what I mean by all of that in a minute. But in order to do so, we have to go back to the beginning of the text. Look back at verse 13, where Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. What this indicates is that Paul is teaching the Thessalonians something new here. Something that they weren't previously informed about. Something that he had not taught them previously. Something that they, therefore, at this moment, still don't fully understand. And this would be very much in contrast to the two other topics he's talked about here in chapter 4. If you think back to when he talked about practicing sexual holiness and the importance of loving each other, he had introduced each of those topics by reminding the Thessalonians that he'd already taught them about it and that he just wanted them to do it more. 
He introduced those topics by saying there in verse 1, he says to them, For as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're already living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do it more and more. He starts that way, and then he goes on, and he talks about practicing sexual holiness and loving each other, reminding them that he'd already taught them these things, and he just wanted them to do it more and more. But then... When he gets to the third topic, the topic of the resurrection, Paul has something new for them. He says that he doesn't want them to be uninformed. That means what he's telling them is something that he had not previously explained to them. So then, what is this new information? that he's giving them about the resurrection. Is it just that there is a resurrection? Is this the first time that they are hearing about the resurrection of believers? I would tell you that that cannot possibly be the case. It cannot possibly be the case that the Thessalonian church did not know that there was going to be a resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead is so central to the gospel that it is unimaginable that Paul had not taught them about it when he was first there with them, even if his time with them had been cut short. And so for the Thessalonians, what is new information here? is not the fact of the resurrection, but something about the resurrection. What is this new information? It's the timing. It's the when of the resurrection. So what does this mean then? For our understanding of the situation there in Thessalonica. What it means is that the Christians in the church in Thessalonica weren't just grieving that their loved ones had died, although they were certainly doing that. What they were also grieving is that their loved ones had died too soon. Too soon to get to see Jesus come back. See, Paul had taught them, just as he had taught in all of the churches that he started, that he visited, and that he wrote to, that Jesus not only died and rose again, but that he also promised, before ascending back to heaven, that one day he was going to come back again. Come back again to finally and forever fix all that is broken on our world. Come back again in order to make it all new again. Now, that day... That day is going to be more glorious, more unbelievable, more splendid, more magnificent, more marvelous than any other day. And the Thessalonians, they knew that this was going to be the case. And so they are grieving that some of their loved ones have died too soon to get to see it and get to experience it for themselves. They were confident that their loved ones would, in fact, be raised again one day. 
They're just assuming that it's at some point after that great day. That's the party they're going to miss. And Paul hears about this, probably via Timothy, who had been visiting them. And so he writes to them in this letter because he wants the Thessalonians to know that this part of their grief is misinformed. And in order to address this incorrect assumption, Paul tells the Thessalonians that their dead loved ones are not going to miss the party. Because the resurrection, it's going to happen before Jesus arrives on the earth again. Let me show you. Look at verse 15. We're back in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, comfort, I'm sorry, therefore encourage one another with these words. There's a lot there. Let me try to walk you through it. Verse 15 Again, that's why I want you to follow along. I want you to see the text. In verse 15, Paul says that those who are still alive on the day when Jesus comes will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. In other words, those who are still living on the day that Jesus returns, they are not going to be in a position, in a situation that's more privileged than those who have already died. What the living will get to experience on that day is not going to be better than what the dead do. And in verse 16, he explains why the living don't have an advantage over the dead. And it all has to do with the timing of the resurrection. The events in verses 16 and 17 basically proceed in three stages. First... Stage one, Jesus descends from heaven. This is the coming of Jesus, the parousia of Jesus. The image here is is of the arrival or the coming of the king. With his coming, there's a commanding shout, uh, perhaps from Jesus himself. There's the voice of the archangel is heard. Uh, Only one archangel is mentioned in the Bible. That's Michael. Maybe that's who Paul's thinking about here. And then there's the sounding of the trumpet call of God. Uh, And don't think musical trumpet, think signal trumpet. Kind of like would be used to signal the movement of the military or used to, to, to call people to come to worship. So this is stage one. Jesus descends with the cry, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sounding of the trumpet of God. And stage two... Deceased Christians are raised to life. Paul says there at the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. First, as in 
before what happens in stage three, which we'll get to in a minute. But notice again that Paul is only speaking about Christians in this text. There is nothing here about, uh, about the resurrection or the timing of the resurrection of those who are not followers of Jesus. Now, the Bible does, the Bible does speak of this or speak to this, but, this is not, but, but that is not Paul's concern here. Those who are raised here, the Christians, they are resurrected, uh, and it happens here on earth. And we know this because of what happens in stage three. In stage three, all believers, both resurrected and those who hadn't died, they join Jesus in the air as Jesus continues his journey. Look again at verse 17. After that, meaning the resurrection of the dead believers, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them, them being the resurrected believers, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So dead believers, they're raised to life, joining those believers on the earth who have never died. Once this happens, they together meet Jesus in the air. The air being the realm between heaven and earth. And at this point, Paul assures the Thessalonians, the text assures us that we will be with the Lord forever. We are going to be with Jesus forever. This is unbelievably good news. Not only is this going to happen, but every single follower of Jesus, past, present, and future, gets to be there and gets to experience this in person. And that is going to be a day. That is going to be a party. That is going to be a reception like no other. And every single follower of Jesus is going to be there for it. On that day, every person who's pledged love and loyalty to Jesus is going to be enraptured. We are going to experience delight beyond measure. And this is why we do not need to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. That is the message of this text. That is Paul's message for the Thessalonian church, and it's God's message for the church today. And no matter what you think of what I'm going to say next, do not miss or lose what this text is actually saying, what this text is actually about. It is about the timing of the resurrection of all believers, and it's the assurance that none of us are going to miss out 
on the second coming of Jesus. That's what this text is all about. But now, let me address the question that some of you have been waiting this entire sermon for. And that is, does this text describe what many Christians have come to refer to as the rapture? Now, if this term is unfamiliar to you, God bless you. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> you don't need to worry about it. It just means that you have likely been spared a debate that too many Christians have gotten too worked up about at times. Now, I am not saying that there are not real uh, and consequential differences between the two views on this, which I'll explain in just a moment. There are. And these differences, they have implications for how we interpret other parts of Scripture. The problem is that there have been times where this question has been allowed to split churches, to end friendships, and to cause deep divisions that are not only unnecessary, but are just plain wrong. The debate over this question, it can be earnest. It can be spirited. spirited. That's fine. That, that, it's totally fine. Maybe even appropriate. But it should not be used to divide us. All that said, now let's look at it. It all revolves around verse 17. Let me read it again. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up that's where the word raptured comes from. Uh, raptured actually comes from uh, an ancient Latin, Latin translation of the text, but, it, but it's a term that simply means caught up. That's why you don't find the word raptured actually in the Bible. Um, but this is where it comes from, this idea of being caught up together. Uh, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. The whole rapture debate hinges not on whether we will be with Jesus forever. Everyone agrees on that. The divide is over where we will be with Jesus. And it all comes down to where we think Jesus is heading when we meet him in the air. Is he on his way back to heaven or is he on his way back to earth? Now, this is a little bit oversimplified, but let me try to describe to you the, most, uh, the two most common positions on this. One side uh, believes that what we see here is Jesus coming to rescue his people away from the earth and to heaven before a time of terrible suffering and disaster, the, the tribulation. 
And so the rapture is Jesus collecting his people, both alive and now the resurrected dead, away from the earth and to heaven for a period of time. A period of time until everyone returns to the earth with Jesus when it's time for his second coming. The other side believes that what we have here in verse 17 is the second coming of Jesus. If this is the case, then what we have here is Jesus descending from the heavens towards the earth, and as he comes, his people, alive and resurrected, uh, come out to meet him in the air in order to accompany him as he continues and completes his journey to the earth. And so the biggest difference between these two views is that the first claims that verse 17 happens before, years before the second coming of Christ. The other view claims that verse 17 is the second coming of Christ. I hope that difference is clear enough. But this then, of course, leaves us with the $10 million question. Which is it, right? Is this the second coming? Or is this a pre-tribulation rapture? This is a Bible question. And the best way to do Bible, the best way to do theology, is with our Bibles open. The best, most faithful way to, for us to try and answer this question and questions like this one is to look at these texts themselves. And while Paul doesn't explicitly spell out for us in verse 17 where we will be when we are with Jesus forever, the text does actually provide us some pretty good clues. The most compelling clue being the phrase that Paul uses to describe our meeting the Lord in the air. Um, In the Greek, it's ice apentesis. Not that any of you care that, but anyway, ice apentesis. New Testament scholar uh, Dr. Jeffrey Wima explains this phrase, uh, meeting, Uh, This phrase was used both inside and outside of the Bible as a technical term to refer to the well-known custom of a formal reception. This custom involved the sending of a delegation of leading citizens outside of the city to welcome a visiting dignitary and then escort that person on the final leg of the journey to their community. So, for example, Cicero. Uh, Roman statesman, philosopher, when he was recounting Julius Caesar's triumphant return to Italy in 49 BC, Cicero wrote, just imagine what apentesis, what reception he was receiving from the town, what honors are paid to him. Um, Cicero also, when speaking of the early successes of Caesar's adoptive son Octavian, uh, he wrote, the municipalities are showing the boy remarkable favor, wonderful apentesis, wonderful reception and encouragement. Um, But more importantly than 
these outside of the Bible examples, um, we actually see this term, this technical term used inside the Bible as well. In Acts 28, this term is used to describe the reception that Paul and his team received as they approached the city of Rome. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to Appentesis to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So the believers in Rome, they hear that Paul was coming. They went out, the, out of the city in order to receive him, and then they joined him as he completed his journey to the city. Uh, we find it again in Matthew 28, where Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. These young women, they're tasked with being alert and ready for the arrival of the bridegroom to the wedding banquet. When he came, they were supposed to go out and meet him, receive him, so they could accompany him back to the banquet. Here's, this is Jesus telling the story. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Well, the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang, rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Appentis him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there will not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the doors were shut. What this is describing is these young women waiting at the place of the banquet for the bridegroom to come. When they hear him approach, they go out to meet, they go out to appentesis him so that they can accompany him back to the banquet. As I look at this text, it all seems to point in one direction. It's pretty clear to me that what Paul is describing in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is the second coming of Christ. Yes, we are caught up to meet him in the air, but that's because having heard of his coming, we've gone out there to meet him so that we can accompany him as he comes again to the earth. to fulfill his promise to finally and forever fix all that's broken in our world. Now look, I don't need all of you to see this the same way that I do. I don't. I really don't. And if you want to talk about it, and we can do it with our Bibles open, I am totally up for that. I love doing that kind of stuff. And I'm convinced that it's exactly the kind of stuff that Christians are supposed to do. 
But either way, here's what really matters. And here's what all Christians can and must agree on. Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again. Because he rose from the dead, everyone who follows Jesus, everyone who pledges their love and loyalty to Jesus is also going to rise from the dead. And this resurrection is going to take place before the fulfillment of the second coming. All believers, those living and those resurrected dead, are going to get a front seat at that enrapturing event. (laughs) Not one of us, nor any of our believing loved ones, is going to miss out on that party. So, no matter what might come, Between now and that day, whether good or bad, whether successes or sorrow, whether joy or suffering, even disaster and death, I do not want you to be uninformed so that you grieve like those who have no hope. We have reason for hope. We have reason for confident expectation. And this hope has a name. His name is Jesus. And he is our true and coming king. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your great unstoppable plan to rescue and to redeem a people for yourself. We know that you designed and created us to be your representatives and to rule this world with you, yet we did not remain loyal to you. Thank you for loving us so much that you did not forget nor abandon us, but instead sent your son Jesus to be our true rescuer king. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you willingly left the glory of heaven so that you could become one of us in the midst of this beautiful but broken world in order to show us how to truly live and then dine for all the times and ways we haven't and won't and don't. And then, Father, thank you for raising Jesus from the dead, our guarantee that we too will be raised before Jesus comes again. Holy Spirit, until that day, until Jesus comes again, please continue your good work in us. Deepen our love for Jesus, for his message and his mission, and for each other. Empower us to be alert and ready no matter when he may come again. Remind us when we grieve that we have reason for confident assurance of our future resurrection. And continue to make us more and more like Jesus so that we become more and more your agents of love and gospel in this beautiful but broken world that one day Jesus is going to come back to finally and forever fix and make new again. Amen.